0: We gotta get
1: Listen, on. uh, uh where are you playing in town? Are you, are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. It's oh, yeah, so the big place outside so of town. Very that's a big nice. place. You sold like out. Place. I'll you see. we really
0: should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. So those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed playing with you. We'll make it. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style.
1: Red weather. Red weather. No later anytime. Hello and welcome to episode thirty of the Cast. This is your host Chris Kalous. It is March 10th, 945 Mountain Standard Time. We just sprang forward this morning here in the US, which means that there's some after-work climbing possibilities suddenly. And at least in Colorado, it also means that the climbing season is just around the corner. I'm not sure if that whole time change thing happens everywhere in the world. I know it happens in France because I once missed my plane out of Marseille because my buddy and I had no idea that the time had changed. And it wasn't because we didn't speak French either because my friend lives there and he speaks French fine. But we'd just been like climbing and going to bed and getting up and climbing for days and not talking to anybody. So anyway, missed my flight. And then of course Ryanair bent me over but I think I've busted on them in a different show, and I'm about to go to Europe, so maybe I just should keep my mouth shut, lest this turns up in Ireland and hits the wrong ears. On today's show, I talk with Matt Sammet about climbing, about writing, and about his new book, Death Grip, A Climber's Escape from Benzo Madness. Very interesting stuff. But before we get to that, as usual, I've got a little business to talk with you about, the Enorma cast of late has been getting some interest finally from some other sponsors besides our favorite charter sponsor, com, who will always be with us in our hearts as well as on the podcast. But what I'd like to talk to you about is the fact that I'm working with some new sponsors, and I don't have anything set down quite yet, but I just kind of want to discuss what that means for you guys and what it means for the show I'm going to be experimenting in the next couple months with ways in which to incorporate these sponsors. I will probably be trying commercials. I will be trying different little segments, just mentioning some of them. Uh, But anyway, you know, the flavor of the show might change just a little bit on that end, but the overall concept is always going to be the same, off the cuff, real talk with climbers, so don't worry too much about that. But, you know... If you listen to podcasts, you know the bane of our existence is trying to get these things sort of incorporated in a nice, fluid way. So, hopefully, you will indulge me in the next couple months and find it in your hearts to support those sponsors with your business. As most of you realize, folks who've been listening from the beginning or going back and getting the old episodes, I really am just making this up as I go. So, this will be a new sort of experiment on the podcast. If my crass selling out, it's annoying, please let me know. You can always email your complaints to the complaint department at chris at and I will be sure to get back to you just right away. I just love hearing complaints. But if you're a fan of the show, keep in mind that this is good news. It will help in the sustainability of this project. And in the meantime, just remember, you can always go over to enormalcast.com, click on the Help Out tab, and find out ways in which you can support the show. Okay, on to episode 30. Um, Episode 30 was recorded remotely at Matt Samet's house uh, out near Boulder. So there's a few interruptions and odd edits because his son, Ivan, was being occupied in the background by my friend, Stephanie, while we recorded. And it's no big deal to the recording. And I know you guys have become used to this sort of thing, but it also has a higher significance. Matt has had a long and difficult journey from narcissistic, obsessed climber to father and husband. And during that journey, he fell into the depths of a type of drug addiction that we don't really hear too much about, at least compared to depictions of street drugs. His new book, Death Grip, chronicles much of that journey. So I think it's actually quite joyful to hear him interact with the antics of his son. So let's get to it my conversation with author and climber Matt Samet. <laughs> Alright, cool. Uh, right on. So l- let me hear you talk just a little bit. Like, I don't know. Tell me your name and how old you are and whatever.
0: My name's Matt Salmon. and I'm 40, uh, 41. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I live here in Boulder, Colorado. And uh, I've got a dog and a cat here for sale that. <laughs> or not even for sale really I'll just give, <laughs> just give them to you. You just kind of have them. There's probably about a month's worth of food that goes with them. You get the litter box, you get the crate,
1: yeah. the leash, it's all it's all included. Yeah, just email chris at anormalcast.com and I'll put you in touch with Matt. Yeah,
0: exactly. I'll just we'll hook that up, you know, first 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 person to call.
1: Awesome. So, I'm sitting in Matt Sammet's house in god knows where where are we again
0: we're in gun barrel gun barrel the, the gun barrel neighborhood of boulder technically okay. is what it's called
1: so like northeast of boulder but it's you know it's kind of a place apart from boulder
0: it is yeah i think this was originally built as kind of a bedroom community for uh the country club and then ibm so it's it's basically detached from boulder mm-hmm. and uh, n- nice and quiet which is how we how we like it <laughs>
1: Well, that's really it's, – it's an interesting uh, juxtaposition of maybe the person I sort of knew uh, years ago because I've known you for, I don't know, about a decade, I think. I think that's right. Since I moved to Carbondale, you were already there. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, people who've read your writing or know your reputation as a climber have, a, I think, a certain idea of you, and I think we'll talk about that during this show. And I just want to sort of preload this by, by saying that our conversation, when I, when I asked to uh, talk to Matt about coming down here – You know, he said, well, you know, I've got swimming classes with Ivan and I've got, you know, then I'll probably take him for a walk. And we're talking about his, uh, how old old is Ivan?
0: He's uh, coming up on 16 months, Uh so almost a year and a half.
1: Right on. And how long have you been married?
0: Since 2009. Okay. So coming up on four years.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, there's this huge transformation in your life that I see. You know, I'm sitting in this room with a giant stuffed giraffe and a bunch of
0: baby (laughs) stuff, five foot giraffe. You
1: know, and living out here in this little idyllic corner of Boulder in this nice, quiet. I mean, it's a beautiful day, so it really adds a lot to this neighborhood. And we're also going to talk about a book that you just put out, Mm -hmm. which is uh, Death Grip. And uh, what's the how does the subtitle go?
0: I think it's a climber's escape from benzodiazepine madness. Right.
1: So, I mean, it's a really, for me, having read that book and sort of reconnected with you here, you know, this transformation that you've gone through in the last few years is is pretty mind-boggling, I think. I mean, I don't even know if 180 describes it, but it's been quite a change in your life in the last five, six years.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, you know, I'm I'm sure there's a point in anyone's life where if you're going to sort of settle into the domestic routine you certainly do but I wouldn't have been able to be any sort of husband or father um, during the events that are described in the book at all so yeah I think in that sense a 180 is certainly accurate and also uh, you know I was I was climbing a lot more back then too mm-hmm. uh, or it had sort of led up to some of the events in the book and, and I think that's sort of obsessive Climber lifestyle obviously is a mm-hmm. lot different than than the way I'm living now. Try it.
1: Um, before we get to the book, and this also is covered in the book, but how did you uh, how did you start climbing? You, you were growing up in New Mexico.
0: I did. I grew up in Albuquerque, and um, you know my parents used to. They're both very outdoorsy. and We used to go hiking a lot in the Sandias, uh, somewhat in the Monzano Mountains, the Hamis Mountains, all these ranges in, around and above Albuquerque. And um, I actually remember being pretty curious because there's rock everywhere. But this was just well before gym, so you mm-hmm. couldn't. Um, as a little kid, you didn't really you didn't really have anywhere to start. I remember my parents were very obliging; they let me kind of climb on the boulders near the trailheads, and my mom even took me there a couple of times. But I, I had always wanted to climb. You know, something in me was just curious about it. Um, and then when I was 12, I started going out each summer to Olympia, Washington. Um, to, to the home of a family friend, Bob, who had been my, my father's college roommate. And he was very nice, you know, nice enough to take a kid climbing for a week, you know, up in the mountains and rock climbing, top roping, rappelling, all these all these great things outside. Um, and I knew I loved it, but, again, I'd come back to Albuquerque and I'd have – there was no rock gym. Mm-hmm. I mean, these days, you know, if you live in a most urban areas, there's at least one rock gym, right, maybe right. multiples, and you have – Kids' programs and camps uh-huh. and, and all that. So when I was 15, I was finally old enough to take a, a climbing course right. through the New Mexico Mountain Club. And after that, I've basically climbed continuously since I was 15. So 26 years ago.
1: Uh huh. Well, that, it's, that's like kind of a running theme through a lot of these podcasts because I'm, you know, I end up talking to a lot of guys that are my age or even maybe about 10 years younger. And, and in fact, just recently I uh, interviewed Cody Roth. Mm-hmm. who's another climber that grew up in New Mexico. Yeah, And he was right on that cusp of, yeah. there was a crummy little gym that he <laughs> was into. And then they built a nice new one while he was there. But in his beginning days, it's funny because what uh, the couple things that you just said about hiking in the Sandias and, you know, scrambling around on little rocks around was exactly what he said in terms of coming of age in in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, New Mexico fans, I just, I'm giving you guys a lot of love lately. So <laughs>
0: that's good. <laughs> exactly. A lot you. of a lot of climbers come out, and a lot of good climbers have come out of New Mexico. It uh, yeah it breeds climbers.
1: Mm-hmm. So, moving forward in in sort of your climbing career, I mean, I. Again, I'm I'm going to make some assumptions here that a lot of people sort of know your career in in similar ways that I know it, but I've always associated you with rifle Mm -hmm. um, in a lot of ways. Boulder as well, but uh, you were one of the early uh, guys bolting and and developing rifle in the early 90s.
0: Yeah, I started in 91.
1: And how did you end up from New Mexico coming up and and becoming a Colorado climber?
0: Um, I took a year off after I graduated from high school in Albuquerque, and I... Mm -hmm. I knew I wanted to go to school. I knew I wanted to go somewhere with rocks. So during that year, you know, as being on the road, I went to, went climbing at like a lot of the perspective kind of college towns in the Southwest, you know, Tucson, um, Fort Collins, Boulder. Uh, and I think I ended up applying to two colleges in Arizona and two up here in Colorado and maybe UNM. And I think I just had connected during that trip and other trips. I just connected the most with Boulder. And I was like, Mm -hmm. I'd always loved Colorado. I'd always come up here a lot to climb. You know, a lot of the sort of proto-sport areas like Shelf Road and Penitente were here. You know, this was back when there was no Red River Gorge or Rifle. Like, these were, you know, the big destination areas. Mm -hmm. and So Colorado had always had this sort of allure. And, you know, I just remember I'd come to Boulder, I think the summer before my senior year in high school and just was like, boom, that's it. Like went climbing in the flat, Iron. went to Eldo, did a couple of pitches. It was, it was hot as hell and greasy, but I was still like, this place is really special and went to the flat irons the next day. And I think it was the flat irons for me. Mm-hmm. It was like, this is it. This is home. This is where I want to climb the rest of my life. So I applied to see you got in and, and, um, came, you know, as soon as I knew I was in, it, I came here uh-huh. in fall of 91.
1: Okay. Yeah, and that's pretty pretty close to when that when
0: rifle's getting discovered. It is. I mean, I think Mark Tarrant and Richard Wright had put in the first roots in ninety or ninety one, uh-huh. like the eighth day and um rumor has it. But by summer and autumn of ninety one the word was out. Right. You know, I remember going to the Boulder Mountaineer, this was well before the internet, you know, and there's the root book and You know, you talk to the guys who are working there. That's how you got any beta. And and, and Dan Hare had some photos that he'd taken of rifle. And I just remember seeing him and thinking, what is this, France? I mean, this Uh looks – photos of the wasteland. You know, this looks unreal. And so, yeah, immediately my curiosity was Mm piqued. And uh, we went there the first time, I think, Labor Day of 91.
1: Right. Well – you know, I, I, I the whole rifle thing has become sort of this running joke with the normal cast. So if you're playing the drinking game, you're already wasted because we've said it like 400 times. Oh, really? Can yeah.
0: we Can we just call it that canyon? Right. Like, <laughs> exactly. is, is that – Give people a break. Yeah, a give people a break. I
1: don't want people's livers to Yeah, fail. well, don't drop a free rider because – anyway. <laughs> but the, I mean, I'm, I'm curious about it because I want – I kind of like, you know, I climb there a bunch now. Mm-hmm. Um, I had this moment when I went there – in the early nineties I'm sure you were still there um it was probably like ninety three or or something like yeah, that I was there and i was we were passing through you know I was my little traddy self and we were on the way to the desert to climb something and we we spent like two days there and you know it just it was just unlike anything I'd ever seen before in climbing, you know honestly like all the stereotypes, the tantrums and the the screaming at each other and the, the, you know, the sort of snottiness to eat Uh, about. I mean, uh, I could name some names, but I won't. But, uh you know, we and and my friend and I were just like, well, this is, you know, this is kind of gnarly. Like (laughs) This is a lot of fun. Yeah, and Uh. just people in that vibe. And I was kind of curious where you think and why you think that there sort of became this Um, Not just in rifle, but with with sport climbing in general in the beginning, like this Mm -hmm. real rebel, this real kind of in your face, you know, almost like going, you know, we said 180 once already in this, but going 180 away from, you know, the beautiful nature and having, you know, that was so much a part of climbing. Like, do you have any, have you ever thought about like what the impetus for that kind of pushback against the sort of traditions of climbing were
0: coming from? like how did reverse to become a bunch of jerks hanging off the rope and screaming by the road, you mean? Yeah, <laughs> kind of. I mean, you know, you spent some time in the book talking about that. Know, the depths in which your personalities all, all fell at that time. Yeah, but. well, especially mine, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I think sport climbing was so new in 91. Mm-hmm. I mean, okay, the mm-hmm. first sport routes had been bolted in Smith Rock and what, 82 or 83, mm-hmm. but even in the late 80s, it was still a real novelty. Like To see a photo of someone in flashy tights on a 512 or a 513 was just sort of this, it had this sort of rarefied, distilled, almost otherworldly feel to it. I mean, mm-hmm. I remember that, I don't know about you, but you pick up the mags and see photos in France, the Verdon, and it just felt like something else, and I think... Sure. There was that sort of apartness, you know, that that deviation from the traditions. You know, the guys with the boom boxes and the spiked hair and the lycra tights. Sure. You know, I suppose there was some aspect of rebellion against the quote unquote rules of climbing, mm-hmm. which at that until that point had been, yeah, I think very strict about taking a top down bolted approach. I mean, you know, sport climbing. All obviously ushered in lots of bending of the rules, glue, chipping, things like that. Sure. That, had been done before but on such a limited scale Mm -hmm. and not as deliberately i don't think so i'm sure that sort of um paradigm shift was informing people's behavior i mean to be honest i think a big part of it too was it was so new that if you were remotely good at it everyone was trying to be the best there was this real hunger to be the best you know i mean these days you you got to be really really good to stand out i mean Mm -hmm. You know, there's people who hold full-time jobs and have kids and this and that who climbed 514. And 20 years ago, you had to be a full-time climber, professional, quote-unquote, to climb 514. So I think, yeah, there was this real hunger for excellence. There's competitiveness. And then, you know, I think a lot of it was was dietary, too, it was, I think, one reason people were so miserable. Certainly why I was miserable. Uh-huh. I mean, I don't know. You know, you came out there in the early 90s. You sure. probably saw... Nobody eats all day. Right. You know, I, well, mean, I wasn't,
1: I probably wasn't, you know, that aware of, of those things going on. Um, But yeah, I mean, again, like it just felt so different from the way I approached climbing. And that was just probably another aspect of it mm-hmm. where, I'll, yeah, I didn't even notice nobody was eating anything, you know, like
0: <laughs> everybody was just like raw, raw. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Everyone. Yeah. You know, I don't know. If, I, I mean, I, I shouldn't speak for everyone else. You know, everyone. Mm-hmm. Obviously approached it differently, but for me, I remember being so obsessed over being thin mm-hmm. that I never thought, what can I do to be better at climbing? How can I technically get better? How can I get strong? It was just, I need to be as skinny as possible mm-hmm. in order to climb the hardest roots. Sure. And, and I think that approach, um, I mean, obviously if you're not eating, you're, you're a mess psychologically. Sure. I mean, you can develop very profound issues even you know if you're not eating fat if you're not eating protein i mean your your brain is going to go off the rails your nervous mm-hmm. system and eventually mm-hmm. your your entire health so right. um I, you know at least for at least for me I, I think that that was a big part of probably why i was up there screaming and having fits and, and tantrums mm-hmm. you know if you're if you're underfed and unhappy uh you're gonna get so frustrated when you fail and you're gonna fail a lot because you're underfed and unhappy (laughs) (laughs) it's this well yeah i mean in the history of climbing it's it it was an interesting moment
1: because i think it it was very much codified in that article um yeah christian griffith i believe was the author but about him and dale goddard yeah they went to went to bukes Mm -hmm. and they talk and they're like about how obsessed they were watching the French and losing weight and eating, you know, a cup of oats a day, or and then, you know, the article ends with an injury mm-hmm. that certainly resulted from dehydration and lack of food and and it's so it's almost hard to even remember those days because climbers have become you know such better about being athletic in terms of their bodies now and it, it's hard to remember that that you know, misery how thin those French climbers were and how oh yeah yeah. And that was seen. And then you look at someone like Sharma, who's, you know, he's a powerhouse. He's got guns, you know. And
0: Yeah, I mean, the guy's totally jacked. He's got big muscles. Yes, yeah. I mean, that's how it should be. Right. Yeah, or someone like Andre. He's thin, but I think he's just thin because he's thin. You know, right. there's that kind of preternatural starvation thinness that everyone was trying to, to cultivate. Sure. And it was, yeah, it was insane, I, I think. Uh, you know, I think ultimately, too, someone told me one thing that's kind of funny. You know, Christian's article was obviously, I think it was the first one to sort of portray that whole thing. And there was a moment in there, I think, where he goes into dejibe Troubault's trailer and Djibe says something like, oh, Christian, you know, you must lose seven or eight pounds to climb Shuka. Right. And Christian goes on an even more radical diet after that. And then I heard years later through someone that the whole thing was a joke. He was just saying it to Christian. Sure. Because <laughs> Christian was already really thin and really right. strong. He was yeah. just saying it, like, you know, sarcastically. Sure, but, kid, but you know, and that, that's also like... To think of Christian
1: Griffith as this young, impressionable kid mm-hmm. yeah, who walked out of there with his eyes rolling going, oh, my God, he's yeah. right, he's right. He's right,
0: know? yeah, we all got to be thin. No, yeah. I mean, I think it was it was pretty pervasive at that point. Sure. You know, anyone who was um, an obsessive sport climber, I think, really probably did put a lot of focus on their mm-hmm. weight. Well, let's come back to that in in,
1: uh, in a second because that's kind of where you start your book. Okay. Um, so let's, let's get to that. You just published uh, Death Grip came out in February, right? Just a couple Correct, weeks ago? Correct.
0: February 13th.
1: Okay. And you built this book um, kind of from an article that you did in Outside. hmm And kind of uh, Crack Hour style, right?
0: Oh, um I mean, it was first person. What yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> for him? So. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm not going to compare myself <laughs> to John because he's, he's such an excellent writer. But yeah, I suppose in that sense, we both had articles in Outside that turn, yeah. turned into books. But. Yeah,
1: I was referring to Thin Air was originally something that he'd published with Outside. Sure, so. exactly. But yeah, so you, you've, you've written this book. Can you sort of give us a little bit of a synopsis of the um, book so we can start talking about, uh, about those details?
0: there's a lot of threads in the book but basically it details i think how i went from being obsessed with climbing so obsessed that i think i I drove myself deep into a psychological well in which i started to experience these things called panic attacks which is basically the triggering of your fight or flight response but without a threat you know it's a really scary event um Uh, I think for me, it happened because of malnutrition. I was having heart palpitations because I just wasn't eating for sport climbing. You know, I'd gotten totally insane and obsessive. Um, You know, when these things come, you know, I mean, think about the last time your fight or flight response triggered. Think of someone who almost T-boned you at an intersection. I mean, think of the way you felt right after that happened. Your heart was slamming. Your hands were shaking. You're turning white. You're sweating. You know, you had all these racing thoughts. You know, a panic attack is when that happens out of the blue. So it's very frightening. Um, and these started happening to me when I was 21. You know, at that point, I, I'd had some, quote-unquote, issues with anxiety, I guess, on and off earlier in, in my childhood. Mm-hmm. But at that point, was the first time I ever took uh, psychotropic medicine. And, and I was given an antidepressant and also uh, these these tranquilizers to take called called lorazepam, which is... Um, In a class called benzodiazepine tranquilizers, which are commonly prescribed for anxiety. And Um, more commonly called benzos. Yeah, Yeah. we'll just call them benzos. It's it's quite a long word. But, you know, the book basically details the very sort of tangled love-hate, mostly hate story that I had with these pills. Um, Sure. I abused them at one point in the mid-90s. Otherwise, I took them as prescribed, um, and I took them continuously from 1998 till 2005. Uh, you know, thinking these are kind of quote unquote treating my anxiety. At some point I need to get off of them or maybe I take them until I get a handle on the larger issues, which I never, of course, got a handle on because it's a total mess. Then I'll get off of them and I'll have my life back. What I didn't know, even though I'd had a bad experience abusing them, was that they can be very, very difficult to get off of. Mm -hmm. Um... In 2005, I eventually successfully got off of them, but I, I had a starting dose of four milligrams of of Klonopin a day, which is a lot of that kind of medicine. It doesn't sound like much, but it's the equivalent of about 80 milligrams of Valium, which is, you know, eight of those those 10 milligram pills. Uh-huh. Um, you know, if you weren't taking Valium, you just swallowed eight of those all at once. It could be very bad. You could fall into a coma or something, respiratory d- distress. I mean, I um. Yeah, I actually had no idea how deep I was in. Sure. And so the book narrates a lot of that. Probably the second half of the book is my struggle to get off these pills and what happened while I tried to get off these pills, which is that I was further medicated. You know, mm-hmm. All I wanted was to be free of addiction, dependence, and of any chemical agents. And I don't think I realized being pretty naive about the psychiatric system that there's very little interest there in getting you off of medicines that if you ask to get off one, you're going to get put on one or more others. Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually had a, a complete nightmare um, in 2005 trying to escape both these drugs and, and the psychiatric system. And it's, you know, unfortunately I don't think it's a very uncommon story. There's not much support for people who want to come off of psychiatric medicine. And there's certainly n- very little to none within, within that system itself. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I was told I was, had a mood cycling disorder. I was told I was bipolar. I was told I had major depression, you know, ultimately what I've realized were these were all symptoms of withdrawal and addiction to, to these benzos and the other complex of medicines they had me on. You know, these are very strong chemical agents that have direct effects on your brain and nervous system. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was just all over the map with these pills. Now it's been seven and a half years since I took a benzo and, and six and a half years since I took any psychiatric medicine, and I, and I feel so much better uh-huh. than I ever did on those. So I guess the, the lesson and the hell of it was that, A, I need, never needed to be on these drugs in the first place. You know, B, I got myself into a mess with them. And then C, I got into an even worse mess when I asked for help trying to get off of them. Okay. So that would be the basic message of the book. And how has it been received? Um, You know, it's hard to know. It's only been out for three right, weeks, right. so I don't know how many people are buying it or I'm too scared to read any of the reviews about it. <laughs> um, I haven't even asked my wife to look, to be honest. Right. I just, I don't know. I mean, people either like it or they don't, but I can't fix it at this point, so there's no sure. point in really knowing. Uh-huh. But um, I've had two readings and... And people responded well to the excerpts I read there. Mm-hmm. They had a lot of questions about my story, about um, similar things and events in their life. Um, everyone I've talked to has liked it. But of course, you know, it's your friends you bump into. Sure. And what are they going to tell you? I right. mean, they your might book have, sucks, dude. What? Yeah, your book sucks. They might have read one chapter and <laughs> he used the rest of the land the, the parakeet parakeet cage. I mean, I have, I have no idea. But right. um, you know, I I feel like. People who are interested in the subject matter or mm-hmm. have lived through similar stories are responding well to it. So that, I guess that's good to hear. There's a, a time in that book where you did
1: receive various lifelines from people that eventually helped you escape the the addiction. Mm-hmm. I mean, it clearly could be that for somebody. It's written in a way that you, you are sort of calling out to some people, especially by the end, mm-hmm. to say, yeah, if you are in this situation, here's here's my story and here's how I did it. Mm-hmm. And and so I, I I mean I'd imagine like I said it's a little early but it, it will only be a matter of time before you start to hear from people yeah in terms of in terms of thanking you or asking you more questions or are you prepared for that or are you prepared to sort of talk with people about this sort of thing
0: I am I mean here's the thing you know I'm not a doctor or a healthcare practitioner sure. so legally all I could do is is share my story sure. I, I can't. I can't tell people what to do. I mean, it's kind of a catch-22. I sure. mean, as I learned, the very people who should be knowledgeable about helping you come off these drugs are the very people who don't want you to come off these drugs, but they're also the only people who legally can give you advice on it. Sure, yeah. So, uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, I can't—yeah, so um, I'm always happy to share the details of my story with uh-huh. people, and if they see some of their own story in that, then then that's good. Um, yeah, so in that sense, Sure. Sure, I certainly am. You know, I guess I have already heard from people who'd read the outside article in June mm-hmm. 2010 and sure. said, "Oh, wow! I realized this was going on in my life too, and it helped me make some different decisions." So, in that sense, um, I know I know that putting my story out there has helped some other people. Well, it's clear that you, in this
1: situation, and I assume other people, need a mirror because you know it was clear that in the middle of it, you weren't even sure what was happening, or mm-hmm. you didn't realize how uh, attached you were to to the meds. Mm-hmm. I don't know, it seems like they almost trick you into into believing one thing about yourself that other people from the outside can see is clearly wrong.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's a very astute observation, Chris. Um, I read a lot of books by Dr. Peter Brecken, and he talks constantly about the quote-unquote spellbinding effect of psychiatric medications, which is uh-huh. exactly what you just described. You know, you're, you're taking them, you don't realize what they're doing to you, you think you're fine, and... Meanwhile, your your actions speak otherwise. Um, you know, I think the second part of that, um, yeah, is that, at least for me, while I was dependent on or quote-unquote addicted to these things and while I was coming off, I was psychologically, physically, emotionally, and mentally so weak uh-huh. that I couldn't make decisions for myself. Like, the barriers and the sort of boundaries that we that we have, and I'm not talking about... You know, the, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do this. Just this, our sort of sense of who we are mm-hmm. as an individual had been completely degraded by the experience, by the medications, by being dehumanized in these hospitals and all these things. So, um, yeah, in that sense, too, as I was struggling to break free, I also did not have as much of my integrity. And I don't mean integrity in a moral sense, I mean integrity in a a holistic sense almost Mm -hmm. my integrity as a human being to have the strength to insist that things be otherwise in certain situations with these doctors to say, no, I'm not taking another pill. You know, you're totally full of it. Right. I just want your help getting off this one pill. I I didn't have the strength to do that. And now I certainly would. I mean, Mm -hmm. because I've recovered, but yeah, I think that's one thing that can, can really happen. You're spellbound by these drugs. You're weakened by them. Mm -hmm. And then you're, um, you're no longer able to make the decisions that you would make otherwise. Sure. And, you know, I, there's that phrase at your mercy, mm-hmm. you know, and
1: I, I thought of that, like, cause you're quite literally at the mercy of these doctors, not only in the sense of, you know, they're sort of applying their, you know, their ideas upon you, but you're asking them for help. You're sure. asking them for mercy from what's bothering you. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, to be, to, to ask somebody who's in that situation to have the strength or to stand up and, say no to what they just asked for in a sense. It seems like this really convoluted relationship that you had with these, these doctors that
0: were giving you these medicines. I think that's certainly true. I mean, I don't know if there's malice there per se. Um, I just think, I mean, someone posted a joke on Facebook. It was like, how do you get a psychiatric diagnosis? And the answer was you walk into a psychiatrist's office. I mean, here's the thing. They only have one set of paradigms for, for Mm -hmm. everything. Mm -hmm nothing to them is normal and everything to them must be medicated. So if what is actually a withdrawal symptom meshes with something in in the, the DSM, you know, the, the diagnostic and statistical manual that looks like one of their quote-unquote disease states, they're going to you you, m- medicate you for it. You know, I, I don't think that's universally true. I think there are doctors who probably listen to patients as individuals, but you know, when you're reduced to sim- simply a list of symptoms to the symptomology, uh, yeah, it's it's completely completely dehumanizing. Mm-hmm. And you know, I guess convoluted is one way to explain it. I, I just think the other way to ex- to explain it is it's actually an oversimplification of the human human experience. Let me switch gears a little bit. Stay on
1: the book, but mm-hmm. and talk a little bit about your writing. Um, okay. I've been a fan. You definitely have uh, at least within climbing a lot of fans of your writing. Um, we, we way back, I interviewed uh, our friend, Andrew Bisharat, and mm-hmm. he pointed to you as sort of a mentor and, and somebody who he looked up to as a writer. However, you know, it, I started to kind of get a feel that, and you actually mentioned that maybe some of the writing that you did, especially during the early parts of this period, you know, were, were maybe some sort of persona. Mm-hmm. I, could, could I be getting at something there? Like, and you know, you were, you talked about writing confront sort of stuff, almost as a, as a, as a symptom of what you were kind of going through. And you have a, a MFA, right? For uh, just, just an MA, just an MA. Yeah. But in, in creative writing. Okay. in creative writing from CU. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, can you comment on that at all in terms of, of the evolution of your writing during this time? And then we'll talk about how you got to to the point where you could put this book out.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's a valid point, and I did bring it up in the book. I mean, I was younger, so there was less of a filter on my mouth. I mean, as you get older, you know, you know how it is. You learn not to say things that deliberately piss people off because uh-huh. you realize that you only know, have so much energy, and it's better <laughs> placed into things that make you and everyone else feel good. But um, you know, I mean, benzos are disinhibiting drugs, and I was on them from '98 until '05 when when I did a fair bit of of writing. So. I think there's columns I wrote that were way more incendiary than anything I would say now. Sure. I mean, I might think it or whatever, but I'm not going to write it. Uh huh. And you know, I I think part of it too was um, being a younger climber, still thinking that I had to quote unquote make a name for myself, and just being having this bottomless insecurity, which is totally unhealthy for Mm -hmm. anyone, and especially um, you know, especially if it informs your writing. I mean, I, I just think. Um, I'm sure I put myself on way more of a pedestal than than I would now. I mean, you know, now I now I now I have plenty of confirmation that I'm just a a punter. M- most things I do, but at that point I was like, oh yeah, I'm I'm so rad. I'm just going to tell everyone how it is. But uh, that, yeah, but I I mean <laughs> I'm going to have to
1: contradict you there oh, okay. because
0: I mean you've just produced you know
1: like you said a 300 page book that's incredibly well researched, well written. It has a message. It has something to say. I mean, wouldn't most people consider that? You know, an evolution to a point where you're actually probably a much better writer now, not a punter.
0: Um, God, I hope so. And, and, and then if they do, maybe they'll pick up the book. Yeah. Um Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm being too hard on myself. I mean sure. let me let me put it this way. You know, I wrote a column about America's best and worst crags. I sure. barely, you know, I just kind of Google around on the net and then I just kind of spout some opinions. I mean, it's kind of funny. It's kind of this Maxim style provocative writing, but I wouldn't do that now. Okay. Um, A, because I, I think when I was on Benzos, I just, I didn't think about the consequences of sure. stuff. And, and B, because I'm older. I mean, let me put it this way, you know. There was that route up at the fortress that you guys bolted that I okay. ended up red pointing, sure. and I was on three milligrams of clonopin a day, and I still feel horrible about that. <laughs> and I've apologized to you, I know, about fifty times. But you know what? Now, even if even even if it was a misunderstanding that informed that, mm-hmm. I would have probably called Michael. T- now I would call Michael twice. I'd call you twice, and I'd say, "Are you guys sure? You know what I mean?" Sure. Like. I was in a fog to a large degree. I'm not blaming the medicine at all, but you make decisions and you exist in somewhat of a fog when you're on these medications or when you're doing any drugs. That doesn't make you, it divorces you somewhat and separates you from the person that I think you truly are. Uh I mean, now if something like that came up, say the same situation came up, I would ask Michael twice. I would have called you. I would have made damn sure right. that it was okay to get on that route before I got on it. Like right. now I'm paranoid to a T about every last one of my actions. You know, when you're on a disin- disinhibiting drug uh-huh. like benzos, you don't necessarily function that way. And right. I-, I don't think that's a good thing. I think we, we have inhibitions and breaks on our behavior for a reason, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it can't just be unbridled narcissism all the time or... You know, Jesus end up in the Republican Party. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, was that
1: out loud? Yeah, it was. Uh, oh, I'm go sorry. ahead and get that in there. Uh, but let me let me say this about about that. I mean, what happened was is that Matt ended up uh climbing a route that we'd bolted before either one of us did it. Now it was a large misunderstanding because Michael Logan is such a nice guy that he probably sort of beat around the bush and said, "Yeah, you can get on it," but in his mind that meant you you know fall off before you clip the chains. The problem on my end was, and this is a a, was a fault in my thinking, is that not knowing you very well and equating you with this persona of the
0: (laughs) the big the big yeah the guy in the magazine, Mr.
1: Big Mouth, Mr. Confrontational. Sure, I took it the wrong way to think that oh well here's Mr. Dickhead pushing me around now, Mm -hmm. you know, and and that's kind of interesting because once you called me and apologized, and I've told people about this. Before that, I mean, you you apologized for like forty five minutes on the phone, <laughs> and you know it's longer
0: than it takes to climb
1: the roof. After right? ten minutes, I was like, no, I got it, dude. Good. Like, I, it's all good. Like, I understand. I talked to Michael, and you were like, I was just kind of like mm-hmm. holding the phone away from my head while you kept apologizing, which was great, and that changed my opinion of who you were, mm-hmm. and you know, and all of a sudden, I was like, why? Wow, he's, he's, I mean, I. Talked to you before, but really just only in passing, so it was hard to determine what kind of person you were. So my impression of you was from this writer, mm-hmm. and I just thought, okay, here he is. You know, it's right. like Rifle ninety three again, throwing and he his just weight around and right. being a jerk. Yeah. Well, now bring us up to date now, and I just finished your book uh-huh. uh, two weeks ago. I read it on the way to Columbia, and and now I've I've been like reinformed again that here was this guy that again I casually knew during this entire period. And had no idea what you were going through. Mm-hmm. And so, I don't know, it just kind of says a lot about, I think, just meeting and judging people in general. And, and you know, we're, we can both admit fault here in that I had put you in a certain place and then put you in a certain place again. And, and neither one of those things were actually accurate about who you were or what you were going through. And so, so that goes into this next question of when you did decide to write this book mm-hmm. and or that article on outside, which which came into this book, did you have anxiety about revealing all of this? Because you admit, you know, suicidal thoughts and and attempts. You you admit being admitted into psych wards at least twice, right? Uh,
0: I think five times yeah. in my life or something. I mean, it's, yeah. so
1: I mean, it's a it's a, a a bearing of your soul in the in the most obvious sense of that mm-hmm. idea, you know. How'd you feel about that? I mean, was it a troubling thought when you started started to put it together? Or?
0: Oh yeah, I think it's horrifying putting that stuff sort of stuff out there. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm actually, despite having written a book about this and a magazine article, I'm, I'm basically a hermit. You know, I'm a pretty retreating person. I sort of hang out here and go to the gym at off hours and climb in my garage and go hide in the flat irons and up in Boulder Canyon. So I'm not. Uh, You know, I mean, you know how it is. You've written a lot, too. Writing's a weird endeavor. Mm -hmm. Like, what someone might interpret from an article, or even what you might write, in order to kind of further the story and and create that kind of dramatic tension, might be different from who you are in person. I'm not saying that either one is untrue. I'm just saying it might be slightly different, so... You know that writerly persona that I had during those years, and maybe even what people glean from this book could be radically different from from who I actually am. Um, but yeah, in terms of putting that level of detail out there about my life and and all this stuff, sure, it's horrifying. You know, I just sort of figure. I mean, I I don't I'm not doing this book so that people either like or dislike me. Sure, I'm doing it so that. They can understand that this is a real issue in society. Sure, and um, you know, if someone judges me for all that stuff, then well, I don't really care. I don't need them in my life. I don't need to know them. You know, I mean, if, if you're the kind of person who goes around judging other people based on their bad decisions and on their pain, then then boy, you know, one would need to look look in the mirror because uh-huh. I think we all have we all have some sort of horror story in my in our lives, or we're, sure. we're going to. I mean, I think that's just just how it how it can happen so yeah I, I guess in that sense it's scary to have those details out there but again I'm indifferent to being judged uh-huh. you, you know I'll, I'll still be happy with myself no matter what anyone else thinks uh-huh yeah, that's definitely one thing that that I learned through this whole
1: ordeal climbing runs through the book I don't think it's a huge theme throughout mm-hmm. the whole thing but It's been something that's been in your life. It continues to be in your life. You, you just were talking about how you're still climbing here. You're hiding out, but climbing a bunch. So, (laughs) you know, let me ask you that. Like, where does it fit into your life? You used to be this crazy, obsessed climber about it. Mm -hmm. Where are you now with climbing?
0: Well, now that we have a kid, uh, it's one day a week on rock from Lucky. Okay. So time-wise, um, I don't really have enough time to be as obsessed as I used to be. Uh-huh. But it's funny—I've also realized it, and uh, I'm sure you have too—that kind of the less time you have to climb, maybe the better you climb. Anyway, mm-hmm. you're just so damn happy to get out, and you make so mo- you make the most of the time you have to climb. Versus when you're kind of in your van and you can go climbing every day, sure. You're just like, eh. Yeah, I'll try that route. You know, but now it's... um, No, I'm not as obsessed as I used to be. I still care about climbing well. I don't really care how hard I'm climbing. Hi, buddy. I just care about climbing well because I like the feeling of moving well. Mm-hmm. I love being in shape so that I can get on routes that are, you know, hard for me. But I don't care about ticking whatever route or whatever grade. It just doesn't... Who cares? I mean, I don't know. Maybe that's just a product of being 41 and not 20, but... I think at a certain point, <laughs> you sort of just stop caring about ticking the next grade. Right, Ivan? Ivan, let's not touch that expensive. That, that looks like some cool thing I, I could know. put in my mouth. I could stomp on it. <laughs> I could it's throw
1: good. it. I like your hat, kiddo. Ivan, can you say hello? Can
0: you say hi, Chris? Hi, Chris. There.
1: So we have a uh, we're just coming back from a little break here. We have a guest on another guest on the show. <laughs> um, we're this is starting to be a routine as well. Last last uh da, da, da. baby guest was da, Rowan da, Pism da, and now da, we've da. got Ivan Samet.
0: Da, we da, do. With us.
1: I guess this is what happens. Climbers da, da, get old, they start having da, da. kids. <laughs> da, 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 da. Da,
0: da. I know. He likes the microphone.
1: Yeah, he does. He wants to put it in his mouth. Yeah. Yeah, so when you look at climbing now, I mean, what, what are sort of your impressions of where sport climbing's come yeah. from when you guys started? Do you have any sort of overriding thoughts about, about the differences now versus then?
0: Well, obviously, it's, it's boomed. I mean, sure. it's, it's huge. You know, when sport climbing first started, people would barely bolt 9s and 10s and 11s. I mean, everything was sort of hard. And I think it kind of came from that original ethos of, you know, bolts are only used – where necessary so that you know the sort of the blankest hardest things are getting done first um so it's i think it's nice to see that sport routes of all grades have gone in more people are doing it i think um the talent pool has obviously gotten a lot bigger i mean you know it used to be novel when someone climbed 514 it used to be climbing news now now 515s and, and hard 514 on sites barely even register right you know right. i think there, there's a glut so in a way, it's also reached a sort of sa- saturation and maybe some sort of sort of stagnation. I mean, it's it's great that these guys are climbing as hard as they are, but in terms of now versus 20 years ago, I think there's less and less of a sense of the boundaries being broken. Mm-hmm. More that there's being pushed along in this sort of inevitable logical progression. But I think it's also very interesting. People have gotten a lot smarter about training. There's way more venues to go to. People have gotten a lot smarter about you know their mental and kind of physical techniques so yeah I, I think it's good uh-huh yeah
1: so well, i'm gonna ask you a question that's gonna gonna probably make you want to punch me in the eye but oh wow because you just dropped this book but uh what do you see next for you with writing
0: oh um you know i have a book coming out next summer through the mountaineers called okay. the crag survival handbook that um i think we're gunning for summer at least um that sort of is a a primer a about all the sort of lost things that used to be passed down through mentorship. Okay. So it's basically how to be a good climber and a good crag citizen, you know. So there's plenty of how-to stuff in there, but there's also a lot of philosophy, lessons, resources, things like that. So I've been working on that. um, What was the impetus for that? I mean, what inspired you to, to, to write something like that? You know, I think seeing the growth of sport climbing, seeing the landscape change of the crags both uh-huh. in terms of how many people are there overall climber behavior and the impact on on the rock i think part of it was conversations i've had with people who've been climbing as long as i have or longer and some industry veterans and everyone kind of noticing that there's been this huge paradigm shift maybe even only in the last five years um you know i mean one of the big impetus was a kind of informal meeting at the alpine club a few years ago where They were sort of talking, you know, trying to figure out how to reach these new generations of climbers, but we were also talking about the impacts. And um, there was a a guy there, Brian, who'd been a gym owner in Denver. And as a gym owner, he was seeing it and said he felt powerless to sort of change how people were coming into the sport. You know, he's like, I know, as a gym owner, I'm creating tons of new climbers who might not have had mentorship or minimum impact practices and things like that. Uh So I think there's a real... Knowledge gap there that that needs that needs servicing right now. Um, so I think a lot of it came from those discussions, that seminar, yeah, and just sort of seeing these changes myself, right? You know, and i and, I'll, and obviously in in learning, sort of writing and researching the book, I, I learned a lot too, because I talked to. I tried to talk in every case to experts on these mm-hmm. things. So mm-hmm. I talked to Justin Chong, you know, about movement and technique, or I talked to Jason Keith and Brady Robinson at the Access Fund about, you know, the big picture access issues yeah. and, and so on, you know, Kevin Jorgeson about footwork, so on and so forth. So I actually learned a lot too. And I think there's, I mean, I, I guess that's the great thing about climbing. You can always be learning. And sure. so hopefully this book will encourage people to take that mindset. Well, yeah, it's something that
1: I've brought up a bunch of times on the show and, and you know, the old guy thing. But, but yeah, the pre-gym, you know, we, we talked a little bit about that even in this show. But, yeah, this idea of mentorship is definitely something that is, you know, was the only way to learn how to climb. Mm-hmm. You know, I just answered an email from a kid. She asked him how old he was. So maybe he's not a kid. But, you know, he's in Utah and he, he's like, I don't even know how to become a climber. He's already listening to the show. Mm-hmm. He's not a climber. How do I become a climber?
0: That's a good question, right? Oh, frog chair. No, it's fine. Is that is Monk in your whole buzz here? <laughs> you know how many times I've heard that song? Yeah, 600,000.
1: So anyway, back to this this guy who wrote me. And I just said, yeah, go to the gym, you know? Right. Because I don't really know how to set him up in any other way anymore. So
0: Yeah, no, I think that's a good recommendation. And then... But tell him he should also buy my book. Yeah, of course. Or my so. my kid doesn't eat. So
1: what's uh, what's the name of the book again? Craig Survival Handbook. Crag Survival Handbook. Yeah. We'll look for that. Yeah, thank you. All right, cool. Well, listen, let's uh, let's go ahead and wrap it up. I really appreciate you having me over and talking to me on the uh, on the EnormaCast because you know I've like I said I've been a fan of your writing and I knew I've known you for a long time and then when I read this book, I was like, that's it's a pretty incredible story um, in Death Grip. So. If anybody's been following Matt's career or his writing over the years, you got to check out this book because it's a whole nother side, obviously, to what was going through your head during those years.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. Well, thanks, Chris. I super appreciate you having me on and also coming out to Gun Barrel when well, no, no one ever comes to, to talk. So <laughs> To the out wasteland to gun of yeah. Gun Barrel. Right on.
1: <laughs> and thanks to Ivan for his many cameos.
0: Pretty good. I didn't cuss, so... Okay. Oh you're allowed to cuss? Yeah, totally.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I've done so many interviews now where that you know, I just Dude, that was the deep This is the internet, man. Yeah, you're right. I don't know. No, I guess there's
1: no FCC, is there? No. Alright, thanks, Matt. Alright, thank you, Chris. Alright folks, if you want to hear the rest of the story, you're going to have to go ahead and buy his book, Matt Samet, Death Grip, The Climber's Escape from Benzo Madness. I will put some links on the website anormalcast.com where you can find it, or of course, you can just Google Matt Samet, Death Grip, you'll probably find it. Matt also has a fan page on Facebook. Get signed up there, find out when his Craig Survival Handbook is coming out, and remember... When you buy Matt's books, you are putting food directly into Ivan's mouth. That's how it works. When you buy his books, it's like you're spoon-feeding Ivan strained peas from Whole Foods yourself. It's that simple. But seriously, Matt Samet has always been a very unique voice in climbing, and he deserves your support. At least his writing does. Okay. Okay. Well, if you guys have anything to say to me about the show, about any of the shows or anything else, you can always email me at chris at anormalcast.com. Please do. In addition to this free podcast, I will give you free stickers. So email me and send your address and I will send you stickers. That is also very simple address equals stickers. Okay, folks, get out there. It is spring here in Colorado. So get out and get after it. No matter where you are, if you're across the ocean, on another continent, or God forbid, even in Canada, where it won't even be spring for another two months, don't forget to check your knot.
0: Come by, pilgrim)
1: She is like frog.
0: Were it worth the trouble?
1: Huh? What trouble?